Good morning. If you haven't turned to Matthew, the ninth chapter, please do so now. We'll uh, be going to that in just a second here. Keep your thumbs in it because we'll uh, go back to Matthew 9. We're in verses 10 through 17 today. We'll primarily focus on the first few verses of that, uh, of that scripture passage there and, uh, and talk about the first uh, three or four verses there mainly today uh, for Matthew 9. We're in week four of a series we're calling Don't Go Solo. And uh, Don't Go Solo is a series based on the premise that we've uh, been learning from Scripture here, which is that God calls us to do life together. That God intends us, us to do life together. That's us as in y'all, okay? That's us as in all y'all which I think is the um, technical southern uh, second-person plural, is uh, all y'all. Um, the premise is that we are meant to do life together. Throughout this series, we're highlighting different aspects of this concept of, of fellowship. And, and I've, I've told you that New Testament fancy word, koinonia, K-O-I-N-O-N-I-A. Koinonia is that, that New Testament word for fellowship. It's the fellowship that calls us to be together as a community and not separate community and not solo. That's why for us the key verse in this series is 1 John 1.3, which we'll put up here for you. 1 John 1.3 says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship, our, that's all y'all, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We'd like to encourage you to take home this series by memorizing that passage. It's, it's sort of a meta-narrative. It's, it's a key theme passage for us on which we base this idea of fellowship. So just check in the back of the connection card uh, to, to find that key verse there. This is our key verse here, 1 John 1.3. Because this fellowship, this togetherness idea, is a two-dimensional kind of fellowship, both with one another... That's the us in that 1 John 1.3 passage there. And then also with God. There's a horizontal and a vertical dimension to our fellowship. In fact, our fellowship with one another is rooted in that kind of fellowship that we have with God. We are called to reflect the perfect community that is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living as one. That's why here at First Christian Church, when we talk about fellowship, we, we talk about cultivating growth. We talk about cultivating growth in our horizontal relationships with one another and our vertical relationships with God. That's the second C in celebrate, cultivate, and communicate. So this whole Don't Go Solo series is about this second C of cultivating growth among us. At this point in the Don't Go Solo series, today we're, we're making a little bit of a transition a transition to this togetherness idea. The first three weeks have been marked by isolation and, and loneliness and going solo. We've looked at Adam and, and Moses and David as examples of going solo through life. Today in week four, we're going to transition to the healing effects of fellowship among one another, especially in the New Testament you can see in this series that there's been a chronological movement from the beginning to where we are today in the New Testament church, in the New Testament. We started in Genesis, and we're moving toward Jesus and his relationship with his friends. 
his disciples. That's why today is called Together with Friends. Because we want to look at a little bit of those healing, restorative effects among relationships with one another that can happen when togetherness in the body of Christ happens. Before we get into it here, uh, let's go ahead and pray for just a moment, and uh, we'll dive in. Lord God, we want to hear from you today, and we want your spirit to be among us, and we want to hear your word. So that even if in just a small way, we would experience that koinonia fellowship, that togetherness to which you've called us. It is so easy for us, Lord, to align ourselves with sin and isolation that hinders not just a relationship with you, but with one another. And so we want to go beyond those ways that we measure one another and ourselves so that we would be a people marked by mercy and not sacrifice. That we would be a community marked by love and grace and not a people who keep scores and regulate one another and ourselves. Help us to do that today in your word, Lord. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. My family moved a lot when I was a kid. Uh, some of you have heard me talk about all the places I've lived and, and, and been in my life as a kid. There, were, there was a string of five years there in Los Angeles. A string of five years where we moved three times. And in Los Angeles, moving three times basically means three different elementary schools, which, of course, for me, meant three different cafeteria lunchrooms. Now, of course, for elementary school students and middle school students, the cafeteria lunchroom uh, holds this, uh, this scary place in our lives because it's that, that place where we started to work out those peer relationships and have those fears. Um, if you've ever been the new kid at school, then you know that walking into the cafeteria as the new kid can be absolutely terrifying. I've got a friend. His name's Aaron Weimer. Aaron Weimer is the minister at Grandview Christian Church in Johnson City, and he he tells of this exact kind of experience of walking into the cafeteria lunchroom as the new guy. He says this, When I walked into the lunchroom that day as a sixth grader in a brand new school, I was absolutely unsure of where I could fit into this mass of middle schoolers and sixth graders. And and all of a sudden, one of the guys that I went to elementary school with from the corner, I suddenly heard Bobby Tarando yell from afar, Weimer, come sit with us. Now, Bobby Tarando was no Jesus. But in that moment, he says, I felt something like grace. For me, in that moment, grace was having a place where I might not be alone at the table. I am still thankful, even 30 years later, Aaron writes, that Bobby took the time to look around the room and invite me to eat with him and his friends. Although I should say, Bobby wasn't exactly the best influence on me. He was one of those kids who was the first to smoke in the bathroom. One of the first ones to teach you those words your mom said to not say. But I didn't care. No. It was a way to belong. And as often happens at that age, I was more concerned to have friends than I was to have good influences. Have you ever looked 
Have you ever looked so intently for that kind of grace, that kind of acceptance that you would do anything to have it? Psychology books are filled with diagnoses that in in some measure derive from that innate human need to be loved and accepted. Even if it means, even if it means being with those who may not be a good influence on our lives, even if it means being with the Bobby Tarandos who smokes in the boys' bathroom, even if it sometimes results in being used and abused by others in our relationships. I want you for just a few minutes here to to hear the story of someone in our congregation who really needed friends and desperately wanted that acceptance like we all do. It turns out that she also found some things she didn't really want. I was a young person then. I was seeking friendship and acceptance. I didn't find it in, this, in the church because I was young. So, some people in this religious group invited me to their Bible study. There I felt accepted. I made many friends that showed me lots of love. Then I began to do a lot of recruiting for them and for the Lord. For that, I received more love and acceptance and friends. After being there for a while, I found that I, did, I didn't follow the rules. And the acceptance and friendship began to stop. There were consequences not for following the rules and regulations. But I wanted to know I couldn't be alone. I wouldn't be alone, wouldn't be able to get out. I was able to find a pastor that was able to help me. It was not easy because they tried to stop me from leaving. I found out that during this time I was in the cult, I was drugged. And it was very hard for me. One day I asked the pastor to lay on hands and pray for me. I was tired of these feelings from this withdrawal of drugs and other things that happened to me in the cult. We prayed and asked the Lord to take me out of the cult and take these feelings from what had happened to me in the cult. That day I found God's forgiveness, his grace on me and my life. That day I found a friend who loves me so much. And I know he loves you too. Thank you, Fawn. Thanks for sharing, Fawn. You see, being a part of that cult system for her meant that the acceptance only happened if you followed their rules. The grace and the mercy only only extended so far. Because once you stop to play by their rules... Then they begin to use and to abuse you. You see, that's what happens for us in relationships that are not marked by grace and love and mercy. If you have experienced loneliness, and we all have, if you've experienced that feeling of of being an outsider, then you know what a grace it is to be invited into a healthy relationship where acceptance and love are not dependent upon things like keeping up appearances, maintaining rules of social convention and posturing that may really be about conditional acceptance. You see, this kind of call, that kind of healthy relationship and that invitation 
of unconditional love and mercy is Jesus' call here in chapter 9. Jesus' call to Matthew and his to his disciples and to us. Let's read this passage together starting in verse 10 here. In verse 10 in chapter 9, in Matthew it says this, And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Verse 14, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Verse 16, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But the new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. What we see here is this, this new law of love and mercy, which, which Jesus sets out at the beginning, is applied in these other contexts in verses 14 and following. You see, Jesus didn't play by the rules that they had set up. His new law of love was to be applied in these relationships. Let's back up to verse 9. Read verse 9 with me for a second. This is where Jesus calls Matthew to follow him. It says this, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, that is Matthew, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now first off, Matthew was a tax collector. He was in bed with the Romans, and so he was, he was shunned. He was part of that, that religious and social and political establishment that was shunned from the common people. And yet, Jesus comes and, and, and offers him acceptance and a place at the table. In fact, it's a dinner party at Matthew's own house. Jesus sort of brings the party with him. He, he in fact, kind of invites himself. Check this out in verses 10 and 11. As Jesus reclined, that's the usual posture for, for dinner parties like this is reclining. As Jesus reclined at the table in the house, this is Matthew's house, behold, behold. That just means see or observe. It's what we call an interjection. It's, it's a way of saying, get this, pay attention to this. Behold, many, not just a few, but many tax collectors and sinners came. They came. They were following Jesus. There was something inherently attractive about Christ's ways of relating to these people who were sinners. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Verse 11, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said, maybe they whispered to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. These verses here make me think of another verse in Matthew, chapter 11. Matthew 11, verse 19, where Jesus quotes what people have been saying about him. Maybe he says here in chapter 11 what he says because of what happened in chapter 9. He says this, 
the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Of all of the titles applied to Jesus in Scripture, a friend of tax collectors and sinners is probably the most surprising and might be the most appealing. Not only does he eat with them, but he's, he's a friend of sinners. Notice they don't actually ask Jesus himself, of course. No, no, no. They'd, they'd much rather sow seeds of discontentment and suspicion and keep it on the DL quietly and in a cowardly kind of manner. Sinners, as the Pharisees use the term, meant anyone who didn't keep the law of Moses and the traditions of the elders that they, the Pharisees, prescribed for the people. Today we call these kinds of sinners, as they might have thought of them, the wrong kind of people. You know, they're they're the ones your mom warned you about. They're Bobby in the bathroom with a cigarette. This list of Jesus' encounters with the wrong kind of people in Scripture is long. Think of this, Zacchaeus, the woman at the well, the demon-possessed, lepers, Samaritans, the terminally ill, most of the disciples when Jesus met them, promiscuous women, a Roman centurion. Can you imagine if that title, Friend of Sinners, were applied to you, how much trouble would you be in? Oh, that guy, he's a friend of cheats and thieves. She's a friend of gossips and liars. He's a friend of sinners, is what they said. Now think about this. Nowadays, if Jesus were a minister, he'd get fired, no question. No church would put up with that. Can you imagine if a discussion came up about me? And the accusations started to fly. Listen to who he's hanging out with. The demon-possessed, lepers, Samaritans, promiscuous women. Muslims. Homosexuals. Drunks. Addicts. Sinners. How sad is that, and how true? How true? And you know why it's true? Because we have our own rules. We have our own rules for what it looks like to be a Christian. And they may have little to do with being Christ-like. Rules like this. If you've been in a local church for any period of time, you'll recognize these. They're ways. They are the ways that we pharisaically impose expectations beyond Scripture itself. And we live out this sort of what-have-you-done-for-me-lately sacrifice by which we measure one another, then we do mercy. You'll recognize these rules. How about rules when it comes to dress? For us in churches, the biblical principle of modesty for dress is not enough. We must, in our sacrificial system, We must also impose expectations of what we call respect. 
that might be equivalent more to my particular taste. You know, otherwise, pandemonium-like button-downs and khakis might ensue. Who knows? Someone, on the other hand, may wear an ostentatious, crazy big hat with a feather, and it blocks your view. And you may have to respond to your neighbor by saying something like, well, nothing. How about decorum? For us in churches, the biblical principle of order in worship isn't enough. We must also, we must also impose our expectations of what we call honor of God that might be equivalent more to my particular preferences and my tastes. For example, in music. Otherwise, pandemonium, like instruments other than the two deemed acceptable, may make noises with which I am uncomfortable. Who knows? Someone might, on the other hand, be accompanied by an instrument supposedly deemed universally acceptable and sing off-key. And you and I may have to respond with the mercy of saying to our neighbor, I love when people bring gifts of music in worship. Period. This list can go on and on and on, and we are all very aware of them. They become for us, they become for us sacrifice and not mercy, if we are not careful. And the people of God were never intended to set up those kinds of expectations in ways that go beyond Scripture. These are not rules from people wanting to make friends. They are easily for us the rules of a flesh-driven attempt to make duty-bound robots out of people so that we look civilized. Sometimes it's about whitewashing tombs more than it's about making disciples. Sometimes, if we are not careful in our sin, we can have our own self-righteous system of sacrifice and regulations that are less about loving and encouraging people to grow in Christ. Like the Pharisees, these systems are not about the sinner. These systems are about us. These scales, these impossible scales, are all about the losing games of measuring ourselves so we look good and we feel better about ourselves. Listen, if Christ was a friend to sinners, then why do we make sure we stay as far as possible from those who need him most? Why do we keep our distance from those your mother warned us about? I'll tell you exactly why. Because we know the scales. Because we're worried that others are going to think that we are unspiritual. We are worried about keeping up appearances. We are worried we won't be accepted. Do you see the irony? 
in that. Sometimes we're worried less about what God wants and desires. That is, to save sinners. To be a friend to sinners. Than we are about the person sitting next to us in the pew thinks about us. Jesus counted so highly his own call to unconditionally love that he didn't worry about what everybody else thought. He knew they were going to judge him. He knew they would weigh him on their own scales and find him wanting. He knew they would only count according to their own systems of sacrifice and not according to mercy. The great irony, friends, is that the Pharisees didn't even know it, but even according to their sacrificial systems and scales, he fit the bill perfectly. And yet he still, still operated out of mercy. This new scale of mercy and love and grace is not empty sacrifice. And it's the reason why Jesus responds to the Pharisees with fellowship. He responds to the Pharisees even with fellowship. I choose fellowship over Pharisee, Jesus says. Verses 12 and 13, listen to this. The Pharisees had their say, and then in verses 12 and 13, but when he, that is Jesus, heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners. When accused of wrongdoing by the very religious establishment, he came to call and to invite at the table. He says, I desire mercy. Doing life together, not going solo, is about mercy. How very badly we need a little more mercy. How badly those who don't know Christ as Lord and Savior need mercy. We cannot, we cannot do this, this life well with impossible scales of sacrifice. We need mercy. When you go out to lunch, right after you walk out these doors, and your server is struggling, and she says, I'm sorry, we're really behind, the kitchen's backed up, I'm doing my best, but your entree is 30 minutes late. Instead of repaying what may not even be her fault with sacrificial scales, repay it with mercy. The mercy of a smile and a 20% tip. Something about Jesus makes me think that's the way he'd tip. When your spouse says something you'd normally take personally and you'd want to shoot back and get defensive about, instead of sarcasm and anger, respond with the mercy of silence and unconditional love that marks what the Lamb took on the cross for us. What we mean when we talk about the gospel is mercy. His unconditional love and acceptance despite the fact that every single one of us, down to every single one of us in this pew, we deserve nothing that he gives us. And yet, 
freely available to all who accept his call is that mercy that brings us together into a family. If a family doesn't have mercy, it's not a family. And that extends to us, regardless of where you stand on anything. Instead of going solo, we need to give in to the process of becoming a fellowship of people whose relationships are marked by mercy. Don't let a a handshake and a smile on Sunday be the full extent of your relationship in the Christian community. Get involved in koinonia, togetherness, in in some sort of a small group here at First Christian. We've got loads of them immediately following. We have Sunday school classes waiting to accept and to bring mercy into your life. We have men's and women's and seniors groups and ladies' circles and and Wednesday night classes. There are lots of opportunities where you and I can begin to experience relationships that are marked by the kind of mercy that Christ demonstrates for us, even among Pharisees. If you've not known that mercy in a personal way in your relationship with God, we want to invite you in just a moment as we stand together to experience that, that kind of mercy. If, if you are a baptized believer in Jesus Christ and you would like to be a part of the fellowship of believers here as a member, we would invite you in just a moment to come forward. If you're someone who just needs prayer, who just wants a place to say, I'm burdened by this and I need some help here, then come forward as we stand and sing.